Hi, listeners. You are hearing this because you're listening to the FT Weekend podcast on the FT News Briefings feed. But we have our own feed, and in a few weeks, we're going to stop publishing on this one. So if you like the show and you want to keep listening, I really recommend that you subscribe to FT Weekend right now, wherever you get your podcasts before you forget. So basically, go to your app of choice, search FT Weekend, and hit subscribe. I've also included a link in the show notes. Since protests began in Iran four weeks ago, the artist Shirin Nishat has been glued to her phone. I think for most of us living outside of Iran, we pretty much expected that we will go very likely the rest of our lives in the state that we are, maybe. Um, mm-hmm. Things will go up and down a little in Iran, but we'll never go back. And then came this day and this news, and we thought, oh, well, this is just another short uprising will last a few days or a week. And now it's like um, we're entering the fourth week, mm-hmm. the longest uprising we've had since the Iranian Revolution in 1979. And the people of Iran are furious. Shirin lives in the U.S. She has since the 1970s. But over the last 30 years, she's become one of the most esteemed, well-known artists making work about Iranian women in the world. And women are leading the current protests, mostly really young women. The protests began after the death of 22-year-old Masa Amini. Masa had been detained by Iran's morality police for allegedly not properly observing the hijab, and she died in their custody. But her death sparked action that's grown far beyond a call for justice for Masa's family and beyond fighting for the laws around women's dress. It sort of unleashed a kind of rage that was brewing in people's hearts and lives. And it it was almost as if they were having to wait for a martyr or someone who symbolized Mm. their struggles. Today, Shirin gives us context for the protests in Iran. We also talk about her expansive body of work. Shirin is a multimedia artist. She came to fame with a series in the 90s called Women of Allah. This month, in support of the protests, Shirin has allowed some of these images to be projected on buildings across central London and Los Angeles. Then we turn to drug research and speak to two FT journalists who've been covering an encouraging trend. It turns out that we can now grow entire mini organs in a lab and then test on them. That could mean cutting way down on animal testing while making more advances in medicine. This is FT Weekend. I'm Lila Raptopoulos. Since Masa's death on September 16th, protests have been growing across Iran. The situation has gotten violent. According to rights groups, 185 people, including 19 minors, have been killed as of this past Tuesday. But beyond the big demonstrations, protests seem to be happening everywhere, especially among young women. You may have seen videos on social media of high school girls giving photos of Iran's supreme leader, the middle finger. Or waving their headscarves in the air, chasing officials out of their school, shouting shame on you. Acts of incredible bravery in a country that mandates what women wear and what they do. When I spoke to Shirin last weekend, I wanted to understand how the women of Iran had gotten here. Shirin, welcome. Thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you for having me. 
I would love to talk about the themes of your work in relation to the protests happening in Iran. But first, I wanted to ask you if you could walk us through what's been happening there. We know the protests were kicked off by the death of a young woman named Masa Amini. But I'd love to hear how you would describe what has happened since. Yes. Um, Ironically, as uh, you and I speak right now, um, there is um, perhaps the biggest protest happening in the streets of Tehran today, Saturday, um, October 8th. And there's a scenes of massacre going on in the streets. Mm. And my sister just left me a message from Iran that is total chaos uh, on the streets of Tehran. Really? Yeah, it doesn't feel like just yeah. another um, kind of protest or a passing uprising, but it's really starting to look like a, a revolution. And I'm shaken as I speak with you. The government is just going all the way in retaliation and the people are not giving up. So there's a scene of war all over the country. Yeah. Sharon, so much of your work is focused on women and women's bodies. And this protest is against the mandatory hijab, maybe on the surface, but it seems to represent so much more. I'm wondering if you can tell us what people are fighting for. Yes, I mean, uh, just talking specifically about what I have tried to do in my work um, has been really to look at how historically, only in the country of Iran, not all across the Islamic world, the female body has been such a contested space. Um, Mm -hmm. And each time there's a change of the government, the whole situation for the woman um, changes completely. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, it came in 1925, during Reza Shah, Reza Shah Pahlavi's father, where his mandate was to move Iran uh, away from a religious society toward a more modern and progressive society. So therefore, it was illegal for a woman to step out in the public domain with the hijab. Then years later, by the time the woman became very cosmopolitan, and of course some people remained religious, then came the revolution in 1979 and came with Khomeini hijacking that revolution. And soon after, it was mandatory for the woman to wear the veil. And yeah. that basically has become the image of the Islamic Republic of Iran, the identity, as if if the woman unveiled, you know, their whole image as, as a government would fail. And that's why they would not possibly relax uh, even somewhat um, the rules. Yeah. How does that translate into your work? I mean, I've never really um, been after anything other than framing the questions because I've never been interested in criticizing people who are religious or not religious, but simply saying this is an incredible phenomenon, uh, how a woman's body is, you know, is in such dispute. And, And then you see today the woman of Iran is saying enough. Enough is mm. enough. Um, keep your religion and ideology uh, out of my body. And, and, and the men are supporting the woman. Mm-hmm. Are you surprised that these protests came from women, that they erupted around the sort of women's autonomy? Or You know, we've had a lot of uprisings in the past 43 years, people really confronting the government for the economic reasons, unemployment, unfair election, lack of water. But it's really amazing that the time that is focused on women, it's not stopping. (laughs) It's like always in my work, I have said that the women of Iran, yes, they're against the wall, 
and they're truly oppressed, but they're not losers. They're defiant, they're resilient, they're rebellious, they're fighters. And so, no, I'm not surprised because that's all I've been saying all this time, that (laughs) the women of Iran are fearless, regardless of generation. And can I add that what's really, really remarkable is the youngest woman in Mm -hmm. age of teenager from 12 to 17 are the most intelligent, the most articulate. I get goosebumps when I talk about it. Yeah. It's really interesting to hear you say that um, you kind of weren't expecting this to continue and also that you're not surprised that it's uh, these young women. I guess, what is it about the young protesters that feels different to you? Do, do they feel different? I think the uh, level of anger and rage that is embedded inside of them. You know, imagine if you're seven years old and you're told you have to wear the hijab. I mean, what mm. kind of life is that? You're just a child. Imagine when you're forced to be educated in a particular education that is purely Islamic. You know, imagine you know, that you can't even walk down the street with your friends freely. I mean, I I just find that they're being so violated for their basic rights. And, and, you know, it's hard for you and I to imagine sitting in the West. Um, You know, we don't experience this much violence, this much oppression day after day after day. I should say here that Shirin was born and raised in Iran, but the Iranian revolution happened while she was studying in America. So she didn't return for close to 20 years. After her first trip back in 1990, she started making art. Shirin was officially banned from Iran in 1996. So she's an artist looking at her home from the outside in. And a lot of the themes in her work are about that. Longing, reconciling her Iranian identity with Western expectations... But tons of Shirin's work also addresses the politics of Iran directly. One piece I love that feels very relevant to this current movement is a video installation called Turbulent. It won the 1998 Venice Biennial Prize. The video starts with a very traditional male Iranian singer singing to a very appreciative traditional male Iranian audience. But halfway through, it switches to an Iranian woman singing to an empty room. Iranian law forbids women from public performance. So this woman's song naturally defies the rules. And then it starts to upend them. It becomes almost nonsensical. Until it builds to something unbearable. You can feel it in your bones. I watched it again and was just yesterday and was so moved by it. Maybe you can explain it. Maybe you can explain yes, it. Yes, um, on the surface, it was really about how um, women, ever since the Islamic Revolution, were deprived of the experience of public performance, music. They're never allowed, and the men are. But once it came to her turn, um, it yeah. was uh, without any tie to language. It was a guttural. And when she started to sing... Her music became an expression of rage and anger and even through so many different emotions. It, it became a kind of a protest. And, you know, it was one of the work that, you know, I didn't have to explain anything. 
the whole world yeah. understood that here you got, you know, the woman who is uh, alienated, uh, anyone, anyone in the world who's more pushed against the wall, there's more chances that they are reacting more tougher. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I see sort of there's this pain of not being heard. You know, when you're watching these protests and watching women showing their hair and teenagers standing up to the morality police, there's also this feeling to me of like, we have nothing to lose. That's right. Yeah. Um, the price of freedom. Um, and, and But look at what they're doing. This could potentially be the first revolution made by women ever in the history of mankind. Isn't that remarkable? And maybe that's what it takes. And sadly, we're losing a lot of people and a lot of young ones. My heart you know, aches and I just want to say, stop, please don't, let's not see any more bloodshed. But the more there is bloodshed, the more it seems like that's igniting the fire in people. Mm. Shireen, can I ask, um, what are you working on now? And my latest work is about how, for example, the female body consistently has been an object of desire, but object of violation and violence, you know? Mm-hmm. It's very odd, ironic that... I shot a video and been working on photographs since last spring um, that is about women who become sexually assaulted, particularly as political activists in Iranian prisons. Mm-hmm. It, it came to me after I listened to many, many trials of interrogators who finally had to confess to the way that they were murdering um, political prisoners, but particularly a raped and sexually ass- assaulted women. And this woman... Um, Consequently, a lot of them committed suicide because they never were able to recover even if they were freed. Mm-hmm. So my latest video is about a woman who basically was freed and able to come to the United States, but never was able to cope with reality with life again. That new work will be exhibited at the Gladstone Gallery in New York this January. There are so many artists like Sharin who've been making art that feeds into the protest movement. And there have also been people posting art inspired by the movement. And those artists are playing a really special role. It's dangerous for this movement to have leaders, but posting art on social media is a way to give it momentum. Before I let Shirin go, I wanted to ask her about one really prominent example of that. It's a song called Baroya by Shervin Hajapur. And it's become the anthem of this movement. The lyrics are based on tweets from people across Iran explaining why they've come out to protest. Baroya means for or because of. So the lyrics include things like because of the fear of kissing a loved one and for the sunrise after the long dark nights. Shervin was arrested for posting Baroya, but has since been released. I'm curious if you could tell me a little bit about it and your reflections of it. Like, there's something about it that makes clear that art and music are very important to protests like this. Yeah, well, I have to explain that, first of all, um, Shervin Hajipur's song, the lyrics, his voice, it kind of sort of wrapped all our recent history in Iran, all the pain and grief and the suffering of Iranian people 
just with those few words, you know, if you really mm. read the lyrics. So he managed in that short song to touch a nerve in Iranian people from across the board, you know. What I always said, in Iran, our artists come from the heart of the society and they talk about the people to the people. We don't make slogans. We speak and touch the emotions, mm-hmm. like those raw nerves, mm-hmm. emotions of the people. So we are told that we are important in this uprising. And how beautiful is that? Mm. That you as artists feel like you actually play an important role and the people respect you and love you. And we understand that we are who we are because of them. And so we have to give back to them at the time that they're suffering. And that's it. That's it. There's no way around it. Shirin, thank you so much for joining me. This was really an honor. Thank you so much for your time. I've put links to Shirin's work and the song Baroya in the show notes. We care a lot more than we used to about animals. How much meat we eat, how the food industry treats animals, how the cosmetic industry treats animals. But there's one aspect we really don't talk that much about, where animal testing is still very prevalent. Medicine. Take, for example, the rules that the U.S. Food and Drug Administration still demands to get a drug to market. Because at the moment, I I think the FDA in the U.S. um, requires one small animal model and two large animal model tests for safety. And that's a lot. That's Clive Cookson, the FT science editor. And the numbers add up quickly. There are said to be around 100 million animal procedures every year around the world. That's on mice and rats, and then on bigger animals like monkeys and dogs. But here's something that surprised me. Animal testing is actually pretty bad at predicting drug efficacy in humans. So our global pharma correspondent, Hannah Kuchler, started looking into it. Again and again, I would go and meet scientists working inside drug companies, and they would say, oh, you know, we have this terrible process of all these hurdles trying to develop this drug, because for this drug, the animal models aren't very good. And it would just come up again and again, and I was suddenly like, animal model's good for anything? To give you a sense of just how inaccurate animal testing is, for some cancers, the accuracy is just 8% using animals. So if a drug works or doesn't on a mouse, there's only an 8% chance that it'll have the same effect on a human. But there's another way where the accuracy is 80%. It's a method that uses organs that are grown in a lab. It's pretty amazing. And Clive and Hannah have been covering it. Welcome to the show. So I invited them onto the show. Hi. First, I needed Clive to explain what exactly we were talking about. Instead of animals, scientists are now testing on human tissues that are grown in a lab from embryo stem cells. The most exciting kind are called organoids. Organoids are miniature human organs. They're self-contained and tiny, maybe finger or thumbnail or smaller in size, and they will reproduce particular organs. 
So picture a tiny miniature liver or kidney without a human attached to it. If you're doing tests, you can see how a drug affects all of its tissue and all of its functioning. Another thing scientists are able to do now that's really cool is take the lab-grown organ and then connect it to an electronic circuit that makes the organ act alive. That means you can see it in action. You can see how a drug affects it. Then when they're joined together with um, a microelectronics devices and fluidics where you can diffuse a drug or through up through them and observe what's going on. That's often called tissues on a chip or even organs on a chip. All of this is a real breakthrough, and it's possible because of advances in genetic engineering. You're using real human genetic material, not an animal that might approximate us, and you're observing entire organs in miniature. You're holding that tiny kidney or liver right in front of you. You can do sort of things to a mouse in a lab, which some listeners might find distasteful. But it, there's no way of really looking into a living mouse in the same way as you can look, observe at the, these human cells in an organoid or on a tissue chip. Wow. I, are the photos incredible of that? Yes. Photos of brain organoids in particular, where you see them beginning to develop the shape of a real early human embryo. Um, and then you can see the brain developing in the embryo. It, it is, it's amazing, it's mind boggling. But there's a catch. And that catch is that in real life, livers and kidneys are attached to our bodies. And so if you found a drug that kills liver cancer, but it also poisons your other organs, you're gonna need to know that. What's hard to reproduce is what's called the whole systemic effect of a drug on a body. In other words, you can make um, increasingly sophisticated um, organoids or tissues on a chip, and you can begin to combine them. But if you want to see how it's affecting a whole body, mm. I'm afraid you have to use an animal. And I think that's going to be, I mean, short of a we're not going to have a sort of <laughs> miniature whole human, I don't think. <laughs> so that's why. You never know, Clive. It <laughs> sounds like we're going there. <laughs> Here's where it gets interesting. These new technologies mean that we may get a lot more and better drugs coming through to early stages of testing. We're able to test on organoids, which are effective but disembodied, and skip the mice because they don't have good track records anyway. But getting better drugs to advance past those initial trials could actually mean that we'll have to do more testing on large animals, like pigs and monkeys. And that's something most people find a lot harder to stomach than testing on rats and mice. If your mouse and your rat doesn't have the same cells or genes, mm. then you can't test them in them very well. Right. But it may be that larger animals, primates especially, are much closer to humans and so do have those cells and genes. And therefore, you end up in this situation where you end up using more of those. But, the th but that seems like a bad thing, Hannah, right? Like, isn't that the reverse of what we're trying to do? I, I mean, it is, but I think I think that it's another reason why people are looking for these technologies more closely is because they know that they can't, you know, just run through lots of mice and rats and, and get the right impact. And that actually, even more accurate 
than testing in a primate, maybe testing on an organoid. Yeah. And also, like, if they're testing on more big animals in the medium term and the short term, it also just kind of means that, like, we're getting better at saving humans, right? Like, we're getting better at curing diseases. Yeah, which is obviously good, but but yeah, it raises questions about how we do it and can we just go straight to the thing that we think is more accurate, right? And and bypass the stage where we try and get you know test on more primates. Clive and Hannah, I'm curious. You know, I saw at the bottom of your piece that someone had written a letter and they said that um, you know these advances in in science and technology are really great, but actually it's important to not ignore the ethical questions of animal testing. I'm curious what you think about it. I think that the ethical issues are important. They're motivating scientists in drug companies and in research labs. But we should remember that another ethical issue is um, the need to get better and better at improving human health and treating disease. And therefore, if this line of science, human stem cell research and the organs and tissues you can make from it, improve pharmaceutical R&D, biological research, and lead to better drugs, you could say that is part of the ethical imperative for doing it. Mm, It's a really good point. Yeah, I agree with Clive. And I would say that actually the ethics are not changing massively. There's always going to be that debate between, you know, how how do we want to treat animals and how do we want to improve human health? Um, but what really interested me during the reporting of this piece was one, those really stark figures that made me realize this, you know, we do this thing that maybe you considered unethical and it isn't even that effective right um and the discovery that actually what i do think is driving most pharma um to do this is to you know improve their success rate and therefore you know reduce their costs and i think that that's quite a powerful motivator that will also have a side effect of of reducing the impact on animals Mm. okay Thank you both. We'll watch this space. Maybe you can come on again and and tell us how this is developing. Um, But I really appreciate your time. Thanks, Lila. Enjoyed it. Thank you. You can read the piece that Hannah and Clive wrote about this with Joe Miller on FT.com. I've linked to it in the show notes. That's the show this week. Thank you for listening to FT Weekend, the podcast from the Financial Times. Before we go, we are giving you one last week for our listener call out. We're basically challenging you to challenge us. What is one thing that you think most people would find boring, but we could make interesting on the show? There's a link in the show notes. You just have to tap it and it will bring you to a site where you can leave us a message from whatever device you're on. It's really easy. Go ahead over there if you think of something. Don't think too hard about it. We might play it on the show. Next week, we are talking about Jane Austen adaptations. I love this conversation. And we're also talking about the Boston Marathon. The Boston Marathon has recently added a non-binary gender category for its runners. So we'll talk about what the implications might be on other sports and tournaments. 
If you want to say hi, we love hearing from you. You can email us at ftweekendpodcast at ft.com. The show is on Twitter at ftweekendpod, and I'm on Instagram and Twitter at Lila Rapp. You can keep up with the callouts and behind the scenes stuff from the show on my Instagram. Links to everything mentioned today are in the show notes, alongside a link to the best offers available if you want to take out a subscription to the FT and give it a shot. Those offers are at ft.com slash weekend podcast. Make sure to use that link to get the discount. I am Lila Raptopoulos, and here's my very talented team. Katya Kamkova is our senior producer. Lulu Smith is our producer. Molly Nugent is our contributing producer with help this week from producer Persis Love. Our sound engineers are Breen Turner and Sam Javinko with original music by Metaphor Music. Topher Forges is our executive producer and special thanks go, as always, to Cheryl Brumley. Have a lovely weekend and we'll find each other again next week.